0: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
2: Welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast with me, your host, Jeffrey Hart, AKA Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and a very warm welcome to Building Sustainability. We are back after a little break and we have got some delightful conversations lined up for you but very quickly first uh, we have got some patron subscribers to thank. These are people who support the podcast financially uh, over at Patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. Um, you can support for any amount you want, or you can give five pounds or more, and you'll get a hand carved wooden spoon in the post. Because we've been away, I'm just going to do the September ones today. It's quite a lot. Uh, so, thank you to Annabelle Cameron Duff. She has got herself a spoon. Rosanna Hunt, also a spoon. Ben Miller, a spoon as well. And then we've got Hannah Lestuvia, uh, Louie Jongsma, Chloe, Annie Benton, also got a spoon. Becky Shirley, also got a spoon. Loads of spoons to make this month. Uh, Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. It genuinely means the world to me. Okay, so today's episode is the first of three conversations uh, that were all recorded at the end of August 2022 when I went up to the beautiful Lake District to attend Woodland Pioneers. Woodland Pioneers is all about coppicing and coppice crafts. It's uh, five days where people could come along and try out different crafts. This year, uh, we made charcoal, uh, we made a little wooden stool, uh, learned to make treen products and a riven oak panel, all the while discussing the importance and magic of coppicing. This is a yearly event, and it's organised by the Bill Hogarth Memorial Apprenticeship Trust, or BHMAT. In this episode, we are talking with Kath Morgan, who is the coordinator and administrator for BHMAT, uh, about the organisation and the apprenticeship scheme. But first, we're going to hear from Mike Carswell, who is a former BHMAT apprentice. He's a coppice worker, and he was at the event doing some cooking, uh, as you'll hear, I kind of interrupted him while he was doing that. But it might not be obvious to everyone uh, what coppicing is, so I'm going to read you a little section from the BHMAT website, that is coppiceapprenticeship.org.uk. Coppicing is a traditional, sustainable and productive form of woodland management. In coppiced wood, trees are regularly cut off at ground level, causing many rods, rather than one large trunk, to grow from a stump or stool. The rods that grow from the stall are straight and long and can be used for many crafts and products. Most of our native species will coppice well. A coppice wood is cut on a cycle which can be anything from 5 to 30 years depending on the size of the poles required. Coppicing is great for wildlife as it allows light into the woods causing a burst of growth and flowering of the woodland plants increasing the diversity of species and creating a variety of vegetation heights within the wood. A coppiced woodland will encourage a wide diversity of insects, plants and animals to flourish, such as woodland edge butterflies. In a derelict coppice woodland, many of these species are likely to disappear. So that's a quick introduction to coppicing. What it's about, we'll hear in more detail from Mike and Kath. A quick note, these recordings were done at the event, so you'll hear a bit of background chatter and vehicle noise. Uh, there's a church bell that rings. Um. Yeah, it's a live recording. I am back at the end, so enjoy.
3: So I'm Mike Carswell. I'm a corpus worker and professional corpus worker now. I'm a graduate of the Bill Hogarth apprenticeship scheme. And I now live in County Wicklow in Ireland after completing the apprenticeship. Um, So I finished my apprenticeship in 2011 and worked in Manchester up until 2017 and then moved back to my home country of Ireland. And I've been there since.
2: Nice. And what
3: what um, what brought you to the the apprenticeship? So, um, I so I grew up in Northern Ireland, and then I moved. I studied music, um, and I went and did a music degree in Salford University in Greater Manchester. And after that, I I'd, I'd, I'd studied music for six years by that point, and I was burnt out. As much as I love music, it was intense and I kind of ended up kind of hating certain aspects of music by the end of it. Didn't touch my guitar for two years after I finished my degree. Just kind of a bit sad. Mm. Really? Yeah. But I'm kind of through that now. (laughs) But um, I realised that at least made me realize that I needed to be outside and that I think that was the the main issue was that I wasn't outside amongst nature and I grew up amongst nature quite a lot so you know so my dad was a joiner and qu- quite old school mentality so I learned quite a lot of traditional woodworking growing up with him and um you know he taught me mortise and tenon joints and things and how to look after tools and stuff and I also grew up beside a very large um estate, um called the Clandyboy estate in Northern Ireland in County Down. And that was my playground. Like as in country estate. Yeah, it's yeah. in yeah, rural estate. Um and um it's like two thousand acres and it's actually they they say it's the largest broadleaf single broadleaf art woodland. In Ireland, I think they say that. Not sure it's entirely true. <laughs>
2: People say a lot. Of yeah, <laughs> I know they do.
3: But um, that was my playground as a kid, you know? And nice. there, there was hardly anyone there. So it was just right, massive yeah. open wood and sticks galore. Used to collect sticks, you know, sharpen sticks, peel all the bark off them, sharpen them, harden the point in the fire, and then bring them down uh, to the house and. Uh, after like years of doing this, my dad was like, "Michael, what are you doing with all that pile of sticks in the corner of the garage?" And there was like, you know, hundred sticks there, <laughs> all peeled and sharpened. I'm like I didn't know what I was doing, I was doing it. You so were I was becoming
2: a, a coppersmith. I was going. a stick man <laughs> yeah.
3: there, like stick kid, and um, I loved it, you know. And so, so after I'd finished studying music, I wasn't quite sure what to do with myself. I so I was unemployed then, and uh, managed to get on to. Um, a joinery and carpentry NVQ which was quite good um,
2: which, What sort of age would you have been then?
3: I would have been in my mid-twenties so I think I was 24 or something mm-hmm. and then um, I, I, I was just sort of thinking about what I was going to do, thinking more about like I think I would prefer to be working with wood and then you know and then through you know whatever looking at stuff on the internet and I was like and you know I was reminded of coppicing, and I, as soon as I kind of read a little bit about coppicing, then at that age, it was like, I know exactly what that is. I know what that means, and and like, and hang on a second. If you can really do that, that means that's actually something that's genuinely, truly sustainable. The method, you know, the system, and uh, and it was just like this is what I want to do. Like, it just clicked. And, um, and, then, and then, so I started, you know, searching more about coppicing and came across the Bill Hogarth Trust. And I was like, that's, I need to do this. Wooden Pioneers, that's what I need to do. So, so I applied, you know, I came to Wooden Pioneers and took it quite seriously and, um, and applied. That was in September, '07. I applied straight away and was interviewed and did a work placement with Rebecca Oaks for a few days and then was offered a place and started the following February and uh, I was over the moon like it was amazing and so also, because I was living in Manchester at the time, I'd already put two and two together and realised there was an enormous woodland resource in Manchester that just wasn't being managed or anything. You know, hundreds and hundreds of acres of of modern plantation and parkland, and um, so part of my application to the the apprenticeship, I said that I wanted to become a pioneer of urban coppicing, and I think they quite liked that. <laughs> um, and so I think that that was one of the things that gave me a place. I think because I and then when I was interviewed, they asked me quite a lot about that, and I said, like, Look, you know, I think I think this could really work. You know, there's a there's a big resource there, there's a good market, a lot of people were gardens, and um, you know it worked. So so I I became one of Rebecca Oakes' apprentices, and um, I, I I remained living in Manchester. And I used my bursary to pay the rent in Manchester. I travelled up to um Silverdale Ornside area every week and worked for Rebecca. She paid me pittance and uh but I didn't care. And um and I went home at the weekends and I gradually then started, you know, networking properly in Manchester, trying to find, you know, out how to do this and um um, tree surgeons were kind of a good port of call. And um, one guy in particular called Phil Ben, who went on to set up a large social enterprise called Tree Station, um, which is very interesting business in Manchester. They um, do um, tree work around Manchester, and they also take in. Uh, wood waste from other tree surgeons and convert it into usable products great it's a really good business really interesting worth a visit yeah and because normally get a podcast out of that yeah
2: definitely (laughs) i know like all of the the trees that come down in london are just chipped instantly because that's yeah they just need to get get rid of it
3: basically Uh, and chip is has value but uh, it's not its highest value no um and um yeah, meeting Phil was really good. He uh, he was very supportive and, uh, and probably kind of jealous, like you know, <laughs> of what I was doing, because um, he was really into craft and stuff, but just never had the time to do it. And um, so when he was setting up his business, his tree station business, at the same time I was setting up my coppicing business, and so he offered me yard space inside their bigger yard which was really, really helpful. It was very generous, very low rent, and we scratched each other's backs, you know, with helping out with work and stuff. And, um yeah, so there I found myself then at the end of the apprenticeship in, like, a mile from Manchester Piccadilly in a yard in an industrial area, um, you know, axing out, you know, fencing blanks or whatever, you know, yeah. fencing stuff. And yeah. uh, I remember one day really early on when we had the yard, um, it was kind of a bit derelict when we started renting it. It had all the copper stripped out of it and, you know, the lead was, had all been stolen and we were having to, like, fix the whole place up. And um remember one day the police helicopter was hovering above me for about half an hour because <laughs> I was there, standing there with an axe, like, you know, green woodworking. And, like, they were just looking at me. I could tell there was nothing else going on. And they were just like, what's this guy with an axe in, in the city, you know? And, and, like, I was just like giving them the fingers or whatever <laughs> but uh, it was quite funny you know so like because um, it was kind of a bit of a, a novelty in the urban area it was, became like wor- it was really good for like word of mouth building business because you know when people found out about me they were like oh this is really interesting like you know and um, and it's it was really good with spreading awareness of woodland management stuff as well because you know I was cutting you know went from Working for Rebecca, we were doing a lot of coppice restoration on National Trust sites and they were open to the public the whole time. You know, we're felling trees right beside public footpaths and stuff, you know, carefully, obviously, <laughs> and insured and qualified and everything. And, um, but then I ended up doing a similar thing in Manchester. I was working in public parks and, um, was felling trees right beside people, a lot of tiny, tiny folk who weren't used to seeing that, got a lot of questions, a lot of dirty looks bit of I grow sometimes but um, it, in the end it gradually people realised what was going on that I wasn't lying when I said they'd grow back because a lot of people just don't believe that they're like they don't grow back why are you cutting those trees down mate is there something wrong with them I'm like no I'm cutting them down so that they grow back and they're like what what are you talking about you're lying you know like and they, but gradually I was working the same sites and often you'd see the same people like walking their dogs or whatever. And over a couple of years, then they changed their tune big time and they were like, wow, there's the guy who does the coppicing. And it's very interesting that. Nice. So it was, it was kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, education by osmosis kind of, you know, I just, I just got stuck in and did it. And I didn't really care what they said or thought because I knew it was good and I knew that it, it would, did realize eventually, so it just took all that I grew on the chin, and was like yeah, whatever, you know, it's all, I have permission and everything, it's all legit and uh, eventually, you know it worked out really well, and then people started asking me to do volunteering with me, and stuff like this and um, yeah, it was really good actually, I really enjoyed it but city life was hard, and I really started to feel it on my body, and and psychologically as well, stress. Yeah. And, you know, like my yard was two miles from my flat and I'd leave at quarter past seven and I'd join a traffic queue and it would take 45 minutes to drive two miles. Mm. And like, Ugh, you know, and yeah, I could cycle some days, but like you can't you can't cycle with a chainsaw or whatever. Just, yeah. It's not realistic.
2: Um, So I'm, I'm cu- conscious you need to...
3: Yeah, you can keep talking. Okay. This is the coppice-powered rocket oven. Nice. So we're baking all the bread and everything in. Tonight is meat night, so we're having wild venison shoulders, roe deer venison shoulders, um, slow-cooked in the oven uh, in like a Chinese-style sauce. It's going to be deadly. Sounds it's gonna incredible. Be really, really good. shit. So I'm just rendering down some pork fat in the oven at the minute to um, fry off the venison shoulders in.
2: So yeah, coppice worker slash gourmet chef. Uh,
3: I, well, Lynn's li- li- <laughs> the Modern. chef. You know, she's the kid or she's the caterer. I'm, I'm her lackey. But I love food and I love cooking. Um. So, and I love meat, so I like the meaty bit. Um, and uh, yeah, we're both really into food, so we take it quite seriously. And, yeah, well, yeah,
2: it's appreciated.
3: Yeah, I know, exactly. It's very good for morale on a, mm-hmm. on a course like this, especially when the weather, some years the weather isn't very good, and like, having really good food makes a massive difference to people's perception of, of the whole thing. yeah.
2: I love it. like when I got here, because I come from more of a, you know, either a building side or a craft, you know, green woodworking for me is, is all about crafts. Yeah. But when I got here, I just felt like I'm with a load of people who know how to make shelter and they know how yeah. to make, you know, warmth and cooking, mm-hmm. you know, with yeah. some sticks and a bit, of, uh, yeah. a bit of tarp and a bit of infrastructure. Right?
3: Yeah. And it doesn't take much. Um, you just need a little bit of creativity and just, and a bit of confidence. Yeah. A bit of experience and then, all, yeah, you can make a lot out of very little. Yeah. Can't you? <laughs> and that's kind of the nature of the beast. That's kind of the nature of coppicing in a way. Because, dude, a lot of people, they just look like a, that's just a pile of sticks. I'm like, it's not just a pile of sticks, it's, it's my livelihood.
2: Yeah, it's opportunity.
3: Yeah, yeah. And opportunity to create really nice things. And people are sometimes shocked by like what you can do with a stick. Yeah. I call yeah. it stick tech. You know, like building things with sticks and like sometimes like here's how I keep the uh, the oven door nice and tight. There's a little a stick. stick jammed in it. Yeah. A little bit of hazel. Brilliant. Yeah. That's how it works.
2: So um Oh, look at that. So, um, so following on from that, I guess, um, you you mentioned that the city had a a market mm-hmm. know, for for yep. the products, and that that seemed what what's really become apparent over these last few days is that yeah, you know, there's the cutting, mm-hmm. but there's yeah, you know, it can't really happen unless yeah, there's something to Mhm. Yeah, your your uh livelihood is actually the the selling of yep the, the cut stuff. Yeah. Not you don't get paid to cut. Generally not,
3: very rarely. Yeah. Um, it does happen occasionally. Yeah, so the markets um yeah, it's that's the crux of it actually. And a big part of the apprenticeship is that you're you're working with someone who has an established business, and so you get the inside view of a, how a, a coppicing business works, and they're all different. Every single coppice worker's business is different, um, mainly for two reasons. One is personal preference, what they want to make and um, how they want to work, and the other is their locality and their their local market. And so there's always a compromise between those two things, you know. Um, you might want to make one thing, but it might not sell in your area, and you might have to therefore make something that you're maybe not super into, mm-hmm. but that makes you a living um but generally you find you end up finding a niche and uh, over time um it's what's interesting is that most coppers workers end up uh, focusing eventually on certain suite of products that they really like and that that, that does sell. Um, and then they really refine those products and they get really good at it, and they become known as as that product person, you know the swill basket maker or you know the the charcoal man or whatever the bean pole person mm-hmm. so um i was I did a lot of bean poles in Manchester like a yeah. thousand a year, wow, yeah, it was great, not every year, but like it was peaking at a thousand like every other year or something. And it was fantastic. And like, you know, five, six hundred p sticks. Um, and I love that, actually, because there's very little processing in them. Mm. I love cutting short rotation coppice. I find that a really uh, satisfying bit of work to do. And then you how, just, how
2: long is short rotation?
3: Uh, well, uh, Hazel, uh, you're talking roughly seven years, seven to nine years in Manchester you know, it's a bit warmer there, wet, microclimate and weird soils. Uh, I was cutting on brown fi- former brownfield sites, landfill sites. There's weird nutrition <laughs> and uh, some, some of it was super fast. The hazel was cut in a seven-year rotation. I had short rotation ash, uh, which is what is in the oven right now. It's come from short rotation ash. Three years old, 20 feet high, Whoa. seven feet a year some of it it was averaging at around six foot a year some of them were seven foot a year there was one in particular one amazing rod it was like 21 feet six inches or something it's beautiful (laughs) it was
2: just hormones in the ground oh i don't you don't want to know
3: but i wasn't complaining the surface was fine i just didn't know what was going on underneath it yeah you know um that was a site called kenworthy woods that was um used to be a gravel pit and then was apparently backfilled with all of the rubble blitz from Manchester in the fifties and sixties, and um, you could see where rabbits had been burrowing into it. And like it was, this rubbish wasn't very deep, and they were they were like scooping up like you know bits of bakelite and old like lipstick from the forties and stuff. Weird, weird like domestic items were just appearing, little bits of leather like from shoes and things. Like they were just scraping it up funny places um but very valuable resources mm-hmm. um and yeah like the market was really healthy it didn't take me long it took about three years to build up the hazel product business and then i was selling out every year i didn't have enough material
2: yeah and is that um, was that enough yeah with a thousand bean poles is that enough to sustain you no,
3: no 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 really? no i mean that that was kind of like the pocket money out of the hazel and then the the better money was coming out of you know making hazel hurdles and her uh, woven hazel panels and um you know that was although you need to be very good at making them to make good money out of hurdles you need to be quick you need to have good material um but I think that's generally why we cut hazel these days, is is for hazel hurdles. And then bean poles and pea sticks and hedge sticks are kind of like the, the pocket money bit aspect of it, the cash that kind of keeps the, the you going while, while you're making hurdles, <laughs> until you've sold the hurdles kind of thing. Um, but if you manage hazel for hurdle rods, you get loads of other slightly lesser quality rods and sticks out of it by default. And so you need to be very efficient. You need to you need to find a market for those things. Um, I had quite a lot of orders for um, you know bundles, faggots, fascine bundles for riverbank defence that used up all the brush. It was great, you know. If you get orders like that, it's fantastic. You end up clearing out the coppice completely, like in the old days, when there was nothing left. Which sounds extreme, but it's not. It's yeah. not at all. Um, so. Uh, yeah, the market was really good. You know, you know, we have to be honest. Like these days, it's not. Coppicing used to be supplying, you know, light and heavy industry with them um, a lot of consumable products from, you know, charcoal right through to like, you know, even in the First World War, they had they were using coppice products in the in the trenches. They have those big bundles of sticks they had on the back of the tanks. They rolled those into a trench, so the, so the tank could drive over a trench. Right. That's a coppice product.
2: Oh my goodness! Look
3: at the photos. You can see hazel hurdles in the trenches in the photos, you know. Um, Loads of chestnut-wired paling and stuff like that. Loads of stuff like that. Um, And obviously firewood and things. These days, you know, we're keeping the crafts alive um, by selling to um, people who have nice gardens. It's, you know, it's people who who really enjoy their garden and are, are willing to pay a little bit more to have a locally made product. And and who also maybe want something bespoke as well. So something, something custom made, custom sized things, you know. And they're I mean, you know, it's mostly the middle classes and it's mostly people who have nice gardens and disposable income. Um but you know, that's just where we're at right now. Mm, how you do know? you
2: see it developing? Or how would you like to see it developing?
3: I think I think that's going to continue. But I also think that, you know, I mean, I think that's going to continue largely as it is for decades. But in the really long term, like centuries, we're, we're going to see something else going on. I think we're going to see people... You know, either something's going to happen that's going to force people to live in a different way or they're going to say, we can't keep living like this and we're going to actively choose to live in a closer way with nature, which means we're going to be managing our local resources efficiently and... You know, that's why coppicing exists. Coppicing was developed because it's an extremely efficient way of managing a woodland in a local environment. And it's one of the things that amazes me about coppicing as a system is that it's one of the few land management techniques that we still practice that has biodiversity as a byproduct. Like, we're not trying to make the habitat for the butterflies. Really. I'm as they say in the Lick District, if you want wood, you have to cut wood. I just want wood and I'm cutting wood. I know the birds and the bees are just gonna come in after and do their thing. And they're like, Thanks, mate, you know, and build a house here. You know? Ah, oh, that orchid's coming up now. It's my favourite <laughs> orchid. You know, they're not thinking about that, you know. Like that saying, um, you know, the sun doesn't give a damn if it blinds you.
2: Right? I've not heard that yeah.
3: before. Like, the sun doesn't care whether you stare at the sun and blind you. It's He's just doing his thing, you know? Like, that's the way nature works. It's not, like, um, it's not actually morally judgmental, you know? That's why we have cobwebs in your house. The spider doesn't really care that that's your house. It's just a good place to build a home. So we, we were coppicing woodlands, and then the biodiversity, you know, the animals were like, hey, this is cool. I could live here this has got everything I need and then they took up home and then and it's only you know, like in you know the 20th century when the ecologists really realised that I mean you know people probably did know that back in the day but not like in a sort of scientific way it's yeah. more in a very natural way it's like yeah of course there's butterflies there they've always been there and we always notice them after we cut to the coppice but like yeah well that's, that's just the way it is you know it's very relaxed, actually. It's not an intellectual thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a feeling. Isn't yeah, it? it's it's a feeling. It's a feeling thing. Yeah.
2: Nice. Um, so uh, the word coppice, where does that come from?
3: The word coppice, so so it's it came into the English language through the Normans when they invaded in you know 1066 and. It then entered the the English language, so we had Old English then, and then we got a lot of French words through the colonialism of the Normans, and they brought they brought the term. um, But it's derived from the word from the French verb to cut, coupe, to cut, um, and but that specifically means to cut with force or to cut with a blow, which. is interesting because when you cut wood you're you know like when you throw an axe you're not just cutting it's not a soft cut like like slicing cheese it is forceful cut it's cutting with a blow so it is a forceful it's specifically the verb to cut with force to cut with a blow so we we ended up using the word you know coppice or or cops um and apparently, you know, in French, the the name for a coppice worker would have been a cupicier, the, the person who does the cutting, and and they also use the word taille, which is um, a cutter or a cutting, and um, that's the root of our word tailor, Aha. the cut cloth person who cuts cloth. So there, those two verbs, both cutting, um, and apparently so there's this guy is it jack Hargreaves had this program on TV years and years ago they're on YouTube about like country rural living and stuff okay. and he is a little bit in one of them where it's like it was never pronounced coppice even if it's spelt like that it was always just cops even if it's spelt coppice it's always, it was always just said cops uh-huh. so we have the word cops
2: and what does cops actually mean
3: it, it's it's coppice it's, so it's it's a, a coppice of trees it's a it's a coppice, it's yeah, literally that, but what's interesting about that the use of that verb cutting to cut is that that's all that we're saying. You're just saying we're cutting wood, it's a cutting, it's an area where you cut wood. It's not specifically about it then growing back, which then implies to me that the growing the regrowth was kind of taken for granted because that's just what they do which is a bit of a, you know, mind-boggling to some people who don't realise that. You know, they do, they just grow back. Most trees, most broadleaf trees, most of our, our native broadleaf trees grow back. You know, in Ireland, all of the native Irish trees, apart from the Scots pine, grows back, it coppices. So then, in, interestingly, um, in Ireland, there's an old coppice woodland that was apparently managed by the Normans when the Normans tried to colonise Ireland they they weren't too successful at that at the time but um, there's a wood called St John's Wood which is very famous it's been an old hazel coppice and there were local people there who today still have commoners rights to cut there and they were asked um, about coppicing and they said they knew what it was but they didn't know the word Uh right so they knew the method but to them they didn't call it coppicing so if you're looking in other non-English speaking countries for coppicing, you're not necessarily going to find it in a, as the word. Well, if you look for the word, mm-hmm. so you might have to look for the local word, verb, cutting. So in Ireland, it's gar, gar, um, is the verb to cut. So I still haven't found out yet whether there's a, a specific Irish term for coppicing, but there probably was. And there probably is in any European country or other countries in the world where they did it. You know, they just—we're using the word coppice. It's actually not. It's actually—it's that's specific to the Anglo-Norman environment. I think, really, but the system isn't. Yeah, it's it is largely a European system. Is it? Well, it's most commonly found in Europe historically. There is—they definitely do it in Japan, and there is apparently evidence of it in North America among Native Americans to an extent but in Europe because Europe was historically very densely populated you know we I think we basically had to develop this more intense system of um, because we were clearing land for agriculture but we needed to retain the woodland resource and coppicing is you know in terms of acreage it's the most efficient you know like 200 tons an acre they they talk about in like sweet chestnut coppice you know that's that competes very well with a lot of other systems in terms of tonnage You know, so it's a very efficient system. It's like intensive organic agriculture. Small area, lots of things going on. Good output. And coppicing's a similar system. Small areas, lots of things going on. Very high output, very efficient way of working. Because it's a pre-mechanised system. So you have to be efficient. When you haven't got to, like, mechanised tools, you have to be efficient. You find out very quickly, you know, the pitfalls of not, of, like, farting about with bow saws and stuff if you don't know what you're doing like you know (laughs) yeah yeah
2: um i mean that's brilliant is there is there like i'm conscious that i don't know necessarily the best questions to ask is there a a thing that you feel like that we should be talking about
1: we'll be back after a quick break
2: hey there i'm mick from the mick and pass show that's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with the old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Uh there is something. It's slightly controversial.
2: Mm, I like controversy.
3: Carbon. Uh-huh. Carbon's the big bad boy. But all organic life on the planet is made out of carbon. And we're kind of being pushed into demonizing carbon in a certain way. And I think it's I actually think it's scientifically inaccurate. Because here's the thing: good methods of land management, which are largely traditional, all have both biodiversity and carbon sequestration as a byproduct. And so if you're basically if you're doing the right thing. You get the good byproducts by default. If you want wood, you have to cut wood. And wood is probably our most useful material. There aren't many materials on the planet that are more versatile than wood. And in fact, I don't know if there is one, really. And it's not... You know, there's a carbon cycle. And we need to be... Working in the right way with the carbon cycle, not thinking about zero carbon. I, I'm actually pro carbon, <laughs> but I but I want it to be good carbon, you know. So like I'm I'm opposed to like industrial processes, and um, you know, working in a more harmonious way with nature involves carbon. And it involves cycling carbon in a good way. And so it's, I think it's a mistake to demonise carbon. And I think people who don't have a good relationship with a, a carbon-based product, like wood or food or leather or something, and they don't have a good relationship with the resource, they don't quite understand that, I think. You know, town folk, no offence, but they're, they're not quite getting it, I don't think. And, you know, in the media are just like they're just all over the place so like you know it's not it's just not really um I think we're sending out really weird messages to people and look you know you can you can be friends with carbon and you know how you're friends with carbon you're friends with carbon by using carbon in a in a really productive and responsible way you know cycling it um yeah. which is the same thing as having a relationship with a fellow human being you know we help each other but we're not abusing each other a good relationship isn't abusive you know and we need to have a good relationship with carbon and like everything that's organic is carbon you know so like don't be scared of carbon basically like carbon is good if you're good with it you know and like there's nothing wrong with charcoal like charcoal's fantastic if you're going to use charcoal Buy locally made charcoal, preferably coppice charcoal, because that is reabsorbing all those carbon emissions directly back in. And that's what we should be doing. We should be pumping the cycle. Because when you pump the cycle in a meaningful way, it works really efficiently. Like, you know, we keep the water cycle in good condition, keep the water clean, keep the toxins out of the water. Same with the carbon cycle. When you do that and you, you can pump it really hard... And it's happy doing that. You know, the coppicing system is, is quite an intense system. We're kind of pumping the ecology of the woodland quite fast and quite hard. It doesn't get tired out because here's the thing. It, you get to a point where the trees won't grow any faster and you have to wait for them to be finished. And that's nature saying, yeah, you can, <laughs> you know, you can do, you can cut me again, but I'm, I'm not going to be happy So you're going to have to wait, you know? The sun doesn't give a damn if it blinds you. It's just doing its thing. And, like, you have to fit in with the system that's already there. And we're living in a carbon system, you know? So, like, we need to be cycling the carbon in a a really positive way. And I think people need to think about that a bit more, you know? So, yeah, don't be carbon shy. (laughs)
1: Uh, my name's Kath Morgan, and I am the sort of coordinator for the apprentices on the BH Mat apprenticeship scheme. That's Bill Hogarth Memorial Apprenticeship Trust scheme. Okay, so that's me. Excellent.
2: And who was was uh, mm-hmm. this memorial? Yes, yes. Uh, so, <laughs> who was Bill Hogarth?
1: Bill Hogarth was um, a copicer, a really well known and talented coppicer in the in Cumbria. Um, And he was very, coppicing was, you know, there was a lot of coppicing in Cumbria. A lot of the woodlands in in Cumbria were coppiced a long time ago. And when plastics came in, um, a lot of coppice um, items weren't used. You know, they were replaced by plastic. But then in the 80s, there was kind of a resurgence of interest in coppicing. And Bill was, I never met Bill. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have met him, but he was really keen on training a new uh, a new generation of copice workers. And he was really, really generous with his time, and our one of the well, she's she's now retired as chair, but Rebecca Oakes worked with Bill, and quite a few people um, who were at his funeral had worked with him and wanted to carry on this idea that you know we would train copyist apprentices, and they decided. In Bill's, you know, name, in Bill's memory to set up this apprenticeship trust. And basically we've got two aims. The first aim is to get more woodlands coppiced. And the second aim is to train, um, like I say, a new generation of coppice workers. So a lot of work went into setting that up. I wasn't involved right at the start, but there was a, you know, a core of people who sort of worked out how one would go from not knowing much to over three years, learning more and setting up their own business in year three. So, um, yeah, charitable status was granted, I think, in 2001. And then in, two, I think it was 2003, give or take a year. <laughs> and again, I wasn't with BH Math at this time, but we they ran the first Woodland Pioneers. So Woodland Pioneers is a week-long course it's an introduction to coppicing course it's run for i mean it's run for anyone who's interested in coppicing but we also ask if anyone's interested in the apprenticeship scheme that they come on the week course it's a brilliant introduction to coppicing and to the trust and to what we do um and it's and it helps us as well meet potential apprentices and it we've just found that that, that week is a good amount of time for people to I mean, either just come and enjoy it for the week or to come and enjoy it for the week and then, you know, really get interested in copying, So that's the first thing people do if they're interested come on that week's course. Mm-hmm.
2: Last night, the uh, the apprentices were, were giving a talk and I think everyone started with, well, I came on Wooden Pioneers <laughs> and <laughs> knew I had to do it. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It is, it is a lovely week. It's a smashing week. Yeah. Um, and so
2: what's um, the apprenticeship? How does mm. that, How does that work?
1: It's a three-year apprenticeship, and ideally, I'll come on to the next bit in a minute, but ideally an apprentice is placed with a, a sponsor, a main sponsor who is a coppice worker who has their own coppicing business. And it's a three-year apprenticeship scheme, and it's structured so that in the first year, the apprentice learns the basic coppicing skills. So, you know, learns to use a chainsaw, learns about, you know, The woodland and what to cut and what what standards you would leave and look seeing timber and you know seeing sort of the trees and thinking what you could do with them and naming trees and things like that. So they learn about begin to learn about coppicing. Uh, They begin to learn about how a coppicing business works because it's very seasonal in nature, and they also sort of have a go at lots of different crafts. The idea is that in the first year. You kind of have a go at lots of things that you're interested in because Bill actually in his in his book, Bill Bill lists a hundred products from cut oh. copies. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and not everybody does every product. So in the first year it's about, well, you know, and, and you're an apprentice is with a sponsor who may be, you know, maybe producing a lot of hazel hurdles, but may not be doing cleft oak, you know. So we like the apprentice to sort of learn what they can from their main sponsor, but then it's about going and looking at all the other crafts as well and seeing where you want to go. Some kind of do what the sponsor does, and, and you know, but others go a different way. So, first year is all about learning, you know, lots of lots of different crafts to see where you want to go. And it's about learning how a coppice business works and about coppicing. The second year is a, a little, you know, a little bit more refined you you kind of we expect apprentices to then they can still try other things but it's about honing your skills really it's about deciding what you want to do and making the most of that year in terms of getting your products up to speed and you know learning what you want to do so in second year yeah, it's it's you're still working with your sponsor and going on other craft courses um but it's about thinking about your own business and beginning to decide what it is you want to do and then the third year is very much about you, um, developing your own business during that year. So that when, when the apprenticeship ends, it, you're not just kind of thrown into the abyss. It's, it's, you've, you know, you've had all that year to work on your own business and build it up
2: still with your your sponsors.
1: still with the sponsor, yeah, we kind of expect that as you go through the three years that you you know in the first year it we base it on four days a week, so in the first year, we would expect an apprentice to be working with a sponsor for four days a week that might depending on what they're doing, we kind of expect that to go down as the as the apprentice is focusing on their own business, you know so that that transition from being with your sponsor to being on your own isn't isn't a sort of a a real big shock it Mm -hmm. should be a nice easy smooth as smooth as it can be transition so yeah that's what we do and and uh, apprentices have budgets you know we please get this in your podcast (laughs) (laughs) we are funded you know we have to find funding for these apprenticeships unfortunately our apprenticeship scheme Right now doesn't fit with the sort of government's idea of an apprenticeship scheme. We really think it's important to have three years um, and, and lots of other reasons as well. It, it's um, it, it, We don't really fit. So that means that we need to look for funding. So one apprentice fully funded is about £24,000. I say fully funded because we have lots of people who are so generous with their time. And their tutoring skills and other skills that people don't claim stuff that they could claim, you know. So we are really, really good at making money go as far as we can possibly make it. Yeah, you know. But um, and it, but if we get the full funding, that's absolutely fantastic. But but sometimes we'll we'll try and stretch it out. Great. And then are the um,
2: are the apprentices being paid?
1: The apprentices get a bursary, a very small bursary. Mm-hmm from From BH Mat, I think it's about three hundred pounds a month. That's it's not a lot. We we know that we acknowledge that um, it's very difficult to find the bursary in funding because that's sometimes something that people don't want to fund a bursary, but we we always give it. Um, and the apprentice d- is actually self employed right from the start because the idea is well, I always say to first year apprentices, you know, ideally you want to be paid by your sponsor. And that's that's right to be paid by your sponsor, but in first year, you know, we've got to acknowledge that sponsors can often take a lot of time out from their own business. And coppices, you don't coppice to become a millionaire, do you? You become a coppice because it's a it's a it's a real true vocation. So it doesn't bring in lots and lots. You know, some people do lot well, you know, you can make it viable, can't you? But, but yeah, there's often not a lot of extra pennies. So I, I would say to if money is your focus, you'd probably go, you else. wouldn't coppice, <laughs> would you? That's very, very true. So with, with, with apprentices and sponsors, it's very difficult for us to say, right, sponsors, you've got to pay your apprentices because coppicing up and down the country is completely different. You know, some people, particularly in the Northwest and in Cumbria, you can get paid to restore an old coppice. But, you know, Twiggy, for example, down Manchester Way, she doesn't get paid anything for restoring an old coppice. So to then ask that person who's not, you know, not made any money from cutting to then pay an apprentice as well, we wouldn't, well, we wouldn't be able to work. That's not, that's not viable. So, uh, so, you know, I always say to apprentices, make yourselves useful as soon as you can. Because as soon as you are upping productivity of your sponsor, then it's absolutely right that your sponsor pay you. But if your sponsor's losing productivity because they're taking time out to train you, that's a bit more difficult. I will also say, though, as you go through the apprenticeship scheme, we do, um, have, you know, we do have assessments that they, they have to pass. And each year, it's really documented what they have to do. They get a handbook that they have to follow, and it's really, really clear what they need to learn each year in terms of coppicing, in terms of business skills, and in terms of um, the crafts. So, um, and two of those assessments are demonstrating. So we we expect our apprentices to demonstrate and do shows because that's how the word gets out. And there is a third year practical assessment, which is teaching. So we do, you know, those those are two really important parts of, of the scheme, really, because demonstrating gets the word out and teaching is it is, well one it teaches other people the skills but it's a good you know it's a good thing to do really in yes, terms it, of <laughs> it, it consolidates all
2: the uh, the knowledge in your head when you have to try and explain it clearly yes but yeah. also yeah it's passing on it's the yeah. whole spirit of the, the it's not a foundation trust trust yeah a, it is it's the whole spirit is. of the trust
1: absolutely so they've got to be there haven't they for, for disseminating all that fantastic information yeah
2: um, so you mentioned that uh, it's not the government uh, mm. apprenticeships, mm. and I think one of the things that's been talked about is is the age. There's an age yeah. limit on government schemes. Mm.
1: Though used, to, yeah, I'm not quite sure if that still exists. I don't know. I'd have to look into that. And I, I, I was before this course, and I will have another little look at that. Um, but yeah, they tend to be age. They tend to be sort of eighteen to twenty-four well to be honest the vast majority of our apprentices have started after the age of 24 so that we don't look at age really we look at the sort of the the connection to the the wish to coppice you know we look for that enthusiasm that motivation also you know well I was going to say you've got to be ready to uh, <clears throat> work hard as well you know people come on this week and it's a beautiful week there's so many lovely people around um and it gives such a wonderful view of coppicing and coppicing is fabulous but you know it's not 3 years of woodland pioneers it's hard work isn't it mm-hmm. so we you know when we interview we do ask about you know how do you feel in the all weathers and how do you feel about working with chainsaws you know it's it's great to it's great to have the idea we can coppice with axes. And I know people who do coppice with axes. But it's a longer route to mm-hmm. to getting your coop cut. So we do expect a little bit of, you know, chainsaw work. Um, some people do that more than others. You know, some people just do the cross-cutting and the maintenance and leave it at that. Other people go on in the second year and third year to do windblown. They get a training budget. That's what I should have said as well, as well as a bursary. They all apprentices get a training budget for each each of the three years. And also a tools and equipment budget for the three years. And that's quite you know, they're quite decent budgets really.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and they get an insurance budget because we want them they need to be self-employed, then then when they you know because it is about them doing it themselves so as soon as you can start doing it yourself you know when you're comfortable doing that and we expect them to do that so yeah an insurance budget and a little travel budget not for day-to-day travel that's for traveling to courses you know sometimes your course is a long long way away Mm -hmm. um so yeah there's a good budgets for them to get you what know, to get through. So if someone's listening
2: to this and thinks yeah. they might be interested, yes. what, what are the, the qualities that you, the you qualities are, of a
1: good coppicing? Yeah. The passion for coppicing, the belief that coppicing is the right way to manage woodlands or, you know, not all woodlands, but a lot of woodlands. Um, it's, it's the enthusiasm for that. It's the wish to be outside in all weathers, in all weathers. Yeah. The, the, yes. <laughs> to be okay with the rain. We have many conversations about at what point do you call it a day and go inside. People have got varying degrees of <laughs> what they can cope with. But yeah, outdoors and just a love of nature, a love of, um, you know, a wish to keep heritage skills going. Because a lot of the crafts that are associated with copper saying, well, I'm ha- really happy to say that, you know, in my time with the Trust, these crafts are coming back in. Into not into fashion, but you know they are people are being interested to get in these crafts. Mm-hmm. But we need to keep being interested in them, and we need to keep them going. So maybe a you know a a wish to keep heritage crafts alive, and coppicing itself is a heritage craft, isn't it? And it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. So you often find people who yeah love outside, love nature, want to live a little bit more simply, as well. I we have had a, quite a lot of people come into coppicing after doing. Um, desk jobs that that are soul destroying Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so yeah i would say that really an enthusiasm and a self-motivation and a belief that coppicing is is a good thing for woodlands
2: great and then um what are some examples of the the businesses that apprentices have gone on to to do
1: okay we had you know yeah it is very flexible it was made to be very flexible and some apprentices, yeah, I've gone on to lots of different things, really. Some apprentices have been with sponsors who have just been absolutely fantastic and have been sort of trying to, you know, when they've changed what they do, they've passed on um, their business to their apprentices. So Rebecca Oaks, for example, are one of the founder members of Map and a, a sponsor for many, many years She had Sam Ansel as a, as um, an apprentice. And, you know, for various reasons, she, she went into Woodland Consultancy and eventually kind of passed her business on to Sam Hazel Hurdles. So they both do, you know, she did Hazel Hurdles and Sam does Hazel Hurdles. And then he kind of set up the co-op. He had, he had that business on his own for a while. And then he, he set up a Mm co-op with other with a few others that had been apprentices but others who are absolutely fantastic coppices who weren't apprentices it's not the only route in at all we've had other people um Twiggy for example who is now our chair and I love that fact I love the fact that we've had apprentices who have then wanted to stay with us and they've become sponsors and mentors and trustees and I think that's wonderful that I me, that a says a occasions. lot that we must be doing something right if people want to, you know, stay in it. But Twiggy was down at Bodfari with uh, Rod Waterfield. Um, she did her placement down there. She has moved away from that area. She She's now in Bolton. And she, again, she's, she's a good uh, hazel hurdler. Makes the best gypsy flowers you've ever seen. She's going to make some for the raffle. They are absolutely beautiful. Um, and, yes, yeah, she does a lot of urban coppicing around Manchester, sort of trying to... Yeah, there's a lot of trees around Manchester, a lot of woods that need looking after. So, so she's into sort of urban coppicing and does a lot of charcoal, does a lot of uh, community groups, community work. Who else can I tell you about? Jack. He he was with Ian. Jack was the apprentice and was the sponsor. They did lots of uh, cleft oak sort of fences and gates and structures. And Jack has now set up in his own business. It's kind of the same thing, really. Ian used to do a lot of charcoal. Um, But Jack, yeah, Jack's got a a great business doing the cleft oak stuff. Ian still does it, but Ian... (laughs) In tried to retire a few years ago, <laughs> <laughs> but we all know that we all we all knew that wasn't going to happen. So we stood. So some, you know, they work together. But um, Jack's got his own business now, and Jack has now got his own apprentice as well. And Jack's here this week making the T-Temp frame.
2: Yes, so he's a, a timber framer.
1: One of he's his, a the timber framer. He's a timber
2: framer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm really struck by the. Yeah, there's basket makers there's yes. charcoal makers yeah. there's uh you know they've all got that coppice mm-hmm. uh kind of core you know the the method of managing the woods and yeah. getting the, the timber but they're all doing something a bit different with it yeah.
0: and
2: it really is a, a wide-ranging uh, area isn't
1: it it's, it really is yeah and you know you you we have some apprentices who for them it's the coppicing that they they want to coppice you know and that's their starting point but even if you you know even if your starting point is a craft that needs coppiced wood <laughs> you know that's just another another way of coming at it isn't it but it all ends up with more coppiced woodlands which is exactly what we want yeah yeah um so you are are you predominantly
2: lakes based mm,
1: well not really. Northwest. Okay. It, north-west. it when we started it we, we, we started in, in Cumbria. I mean I'm not Cumbria, I'm actually um north northwest. Lancashire. Oh, just below the border. Okay. Um It's all north to me. Up from Watford. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> oh, yeah, winning.
0: <laughs> but Excuse Bill my was No, it's <laughs> fine. No, I'm a
1: bit the same with, you know, from yeah. sort of Manchester down. That's me. <laughs> I'm a hopeless. But um yeah, Bill was based in Cumbria, obviously, you know, and he was the last coppicer, actually, to learn the skills of coppicing from his father for right. it to be passed down in that way. Um, so it, when we when it was first set up, yeah, the first few placements were in Cumbria. Mm-hmm. But then we have slowly cracked out and we've had, you know, Twiggy's now... A, well, Twiggy did her apprenticeship down in Wales, North Wales, and now she's in Bolton, sort of Manchester, Bolton area, And, you know, the co-op is almost in Cumbria, but they're Lancashire. And we've also had Tim Davis, who'll be here later in the week. He's He did his apprenticeship scheme up in the northeast. So we've kind of, you know, we've stuck our noses in there as well. Mm -hmm. And our latest apprentice, Shannon, will be based in the northeast. And we've also had somebody in Scotland. So we'd be, I think we'd be happy to support, you know, anyone from... From the Northwest, really, because the Smallwoods Centre, the Smallwoods yep. organisation based at the Greenwood Centre in Telford, they run the scheme nationally. Okay. So they have that, sometimes that have placements. My next yes, they have yeah. placements down south. And actually, right at, at the moment, they are looking for two, for two apprentices. Oh, yeah. But then it's the same scheme. They run it slightly differently, you know. It's it's up to them how they kind of roll it out. But it's the same scheme. They they end up with a you know Bill Hogarth, copy's diploma after three years, and yeah, yeah. But they're sort of I know they've had sort of Devon and Wiltshire and Derbyshire. I think I think Derbyshire is one of the places that they they have at the minute. Great. Open.
2: I think that's all of my questions. Okay. But
1: is there anything? we need to things that I wouldn't know
2: to ask you mm. I
1: suppose one thing I'd want to say just talking about the funding if anybody listening has got any idea of where any money could be got at <laughs> that would be wonderful I mean I often write funding bids and Rebecca writes but the people who are writing these we don't, we're fine at writing funding bids but it's, it's always a scrabble of right who do we ask now there are some fantastic trusts that have given us am- amazing, you know, amazing um, funding grants. But, but yeah, it, it's always a it's always a struggle. That's sadly that's that's the struggly bit, really. Yeah, is, is finding the money to cover. So, if anyone's got any idea of anywhere that I could kind of think, oh, I'll ask them. Any trusts? Any foundations? Any charities that give grants.
2: Get in contact.
1: Get in contact and just give me an email or give me a website to look at. Because sometimes people say something to me, like someone's just said one to me and I've I've never heard of those, but I'll have a look. That sounds great. So, Any tips on where to look? Gratefully received. And what's your website? Our website is, well, if you just Googled BH Matt, or uppercase, that would work, or the Bill Hogarth Memorial Apprenticeship Trust, Or I think our email is info at coppersapprentice.org.uk. Great. That's brilliant. Thanks, anybody, for any tips (laughs) tool.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: Many thanks to Kath for chatting with me and, more importantly, organising such a great event. Uh, I shall be trying my very best to return next year. Um, And, of course, thanks to Mike as well for letting me interrupt his busy day cooking up delicious food all week. There are various links in the show notes, the BHMAT website. There's a beautiful Woodland Pioneers video that was made a few years ago. There is a link to that Jack Hargreaves talked About copsing YouTube that Mike talked about. Uh, that is really worth a watch. And it's it's quite dated in its... Uh, he describes everyone as a man. Uh, it's slightly jarring. But, yeah, definitely worth a watch anyway. Link to Tree Station in Manchester. Uh, also put a link to Coppice Conversations, which was a short podcast series um, about coppicing that was done. Um, and the Coppice Association Northwest link to their website. If I can think of any others in the meantime, I will pop them in the show notes. (laughs) All right. That is it from me. Thank you for listening, and there will be two more episodes recorded at the Woodland Pioneers out at the same time as this, so head on over and listen to those. All right. Until next time. Bye-bye.